Blog Talk Radio. This week on Backroom Politics, one week after the grand jury decision and the ensuing protests and riots in several cities around the country, what is the true fallout of Ferguson and where does the country go from here? Joining us live will be news anchor Pat McGonigal from KSDK in St. Louis. Next, Secretary of Defense Chuck Hagel announces his departure from the administration under a cloud of questions. Was he fired? Was this voluntary? What does this mean for the administration and the Defense Department? Hey, now that we've been stuffed with turkey, we can now get stuffed by a duck. Lame duck, as in lame duck Congress. What are the expectations, if any, that can come from this final push of the year? Will this include a deal on immigration, or will this all lead to government shutdown? All of this, and tell me a story this week on Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. out there in radio land this is the best political talk show you've never heard of this is backroom politics live from shelley's backroom 1331 f street in the heart of our nation's capital washington dc joining me as they do every tuesday to my left ironically he is the former floor chief for then congressman gerald r ford and former vice president of government affairs for the national broadcasting corporation he is bob hines hello bob Hello, Justin. Good to be back from South Carolina. Oh, gosh. It was a lot warmer down there in Florida than it is here, that's for sure. To my 11 o'clock across the table, he is the former executive director of the Democratic Party of the great state of Maryland, former lobbyist for 20th Century Fox, a Washington insider, Carl Tubin. Hello, Carl. Hello, Justin. And directly across the table at my 12 o'clock, she is the uh, former general counsel to the House Homeland Security Committee under Benny Thompson, former general counsel to the Maritime Administration under Barack Obama. She is the Honorable Denise Krep. Hello, Denise. Hello, Justin. And to my 1 o'clock, he is the former longtime Senate staffer, former Undersecretary of Commerce who served under last count four presidents. He is a very handsome, distinguished, and factual fellow from the Stimson Center. He is the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin. And to my right, he is longtime Democratic political operative and bar certified attorney in the District of Columbia in the great state of New York. He is Dan Lipner. Dan, welcome. I'm glad to be here in post-racial America, Justin. <laughs> Good. Well, speaking of which, uh, joining us right now, live from St. Louis, is Pat McGonigal. He is the anchor at NBC affiliate KSDK out there in St. Louis. Pat, how you doing? Hey, Justin, how you doing? Happy to be part of the program. Welcome back to Backroom Politics, Pat. Always good to have you on. Hey, uh, Pat, we're obviously going to be starting off with uh, the situation that happened out in Ferguson. It's been one week since the uh, grand jury decision not to indict uh, a police officer with the Ferguson Police Department who uh, took the life of the 17-year-old Michael Brown in the streets of Ferguson. 
Uh, Darren Wilson uh, has uh, been cleared of any criminal wrongdoing. Let's let's start back with the events leading up to the grand jury indictment. Uh, Pat, the, the, the district attorney has come under a lot of fire for the way that he's presented the case or apparently presented the case to the grand jury. Uh, some say that he went overboard, presented too much evidence. Uh, a lot of people in, uh, in, in the urban communities are saying he didn't present it correctly. What's the reality that you're hearing out there in St. Louis? Well, it's been very interesting, Justin, because Bob McCullough, the prosecutor, he also took the sort of unusual step of releasing all of the grand jury testimony so that everyone could read and see exactly what the grand jurors went over. So the interesting thing that's happened over the last week or so is that now that the facts are out there, as they were presented to the grand jury anyway, a lot of the variables and the mysteries about what happened are kind of gone. So you had the tragic death of of uh, Mike Brown back in August, and then we had three months of just sort of leaks and not knowing anything. And then, of course, a week ago Monday, we have the no indictment, no true bill, and then the um, – and then the documents come out. But what happened in the meantime was this whole Ferguson movement started, and the whole Mike Brown movement started. And I feel we're at a very interesting point in history because the preponderance of the evidence I have read does seem to seem to slant towards the prosecutor's ultimate or the grand jury's decision that the young man did, for whatever reason, uh, seem to charge at the officer, and it was an awful tragedy, and it's a shame it happened, but he fired at him because he felt his, his life was in jeopardy. So that doesn't mean, though, that the movement that Ferguson is and all across the country, that there's two Americas, there's a white America and a black America, it doesn't change the fact that that, that movement may well be needed and is completely justified. It, it just... A lot of people have said it's unfortunate that the poster child, if you will, for this movement may not have been such a sympathetic character as, as some would have you believe. Um, and, and that's the problem that we're at right now, it, that both things are true, that Officer Wilson may well have been justified, but the protesters do have a right to be out there, and maybe not in this specific case, but in a larger sense, they they do have an axe to grind. Hey Pat, let, let me let me go back to the evidence so that you and the team at KSDK have have done a great job of analyzing the unprecedented move by the prosecution and the DA's office to release what is normally a sealed grand jury uh, 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 event. The question that comes up is. After you guys have analyzed it, there seems to be a lot of disparity between all of the witness testimony that was brought before the grand jury. There doesn't seem to be a lot of uh, collaboration or single collaboration in a, a definite timeline of events that happened there. What's your take on that? Yeah, I did, uh, and, and that's been the weird part about this. It's a mountain of evidence. So the first night, it was a race against the clock to have as many legal experts on hand to get through all this and to make sense of it. But I can tell you, I have read, um, I've re I want to say 70% uh, I, I read uh, Officer Wilson's uh, testimony of the grand jury. I read Dorian Johnson, the young man who was with Mike Brown. Um, and 
I would say at least four or five witness statements that I read um, had this same narrative of Mike Brown turning around for some reason, charging towards Darren Wilson. He fires his weapon. Mike Brown stops. And then again, for some reason, charges a second time, and then he fires the shots at him once again. Now, again, legal experts will tell you witnesses can be very unreliable. A lot of times their recollections sort of reflect their experience and their cultural point of view. So, in other words, Mike Brown staggering from gunshot wounds to the ground may look to somebody like he's charging at that time. Um, Ultimately, only God knows. Uh, what it was, but I would I would tell you this, Justin. If you get a second, and, and anybody listening, the most bizarre testimony of all. Have you read witness number forty? No, I have not. This was this, this is it's so bizarre. It was entered as evidence, and it's like too strange not to be real. This is, from what I understand, a woman who was in one of the cars behind Officer Wilson's car that day. She was stuck in traffic on Canfield Drive, and she kept a journal entry of her daily activities. And on August 9th, in her journal, she writes in cursive, well, here I go on my regular drive through Florissant and Ferguson to try to better understand black people. I really want to learn how to think of them as black people and not, and then she uses the N-word. And then later that day, she writes in her journal, like, OMFG, cannot believe what I just saw. Um, officer shot a big black kid who was charging at him. And it, it's, it's just, it was the weirdest thing. I, when I'm reading this, my jaw was literally on the floor that this testimony, that this account came that just sounds so bizarre that it was like this young woman who drives through this neighborhood to try and understand her worldview and admits to being somewhat racist. And she witnessed this whole thing. It, it, it blew my mind. I mean, it's easy. if you just Google grand jury testimony witness 40, it'll come up. It's just four PDF pages, and it's just so bizarre. Pat, let, let me ask you about the, you know, we, we've been hearing a lot in the media and through officials out there in St. Louis County as well as inside the city of Ferguson that the it's, it's an obvious situation where there is a predominantly black population in Ferguson. They are uh, the, the laws are enforced by a police department that is largely white. However, in, in talking with some folks out there in Ferguson, in St. Louis County, it almost seems that the tension between the black community and the white community in Ferguson has almost been overly hyped or overly energized because of this event. In, in your knowledge of that community, and I know that you don't live too far from Ferguson, did you ever get the sense prior to the Michael Brown shooting that there was a great sense of tension in Ferguson between the black community and the white community? Yeah, there, there really is, Justin. And, and, the, and the real shame of it is, um, as you probably know, Ferguson, it, it switched over, racially speaking, in about 20 years. Like 1990, it was a majority white suburb. Uh, in 20 years, it flipped to almost 75% African-American. But the school board, the police department, the chief, the mayor, they're all still primarily white, and a lot of the tax base left. So the accusation is that the police department has become sort of an ATM machine, and they will pick up people, and they have red light cameras, and 
they assess all these fines and these tickets, and essentially people who live in Ferguson will say it's it's become illegal to be poor because I get a warrant and then I don't show up to court and then I'm arrested again and then I owe all this bail money. So people really do, fair or unfair, walk around and many of them feel like the police are just there to gouge them. And I'm going to make a parallel here, and I'm going to tread very carefully, Justin. Um, I know I'm not a history major, but my 13-year-old, I just brought her to the doctor. She's studying the American Revolutionary War, and she was talking about the historical event, the Boston Massacre. Now, I'm in no way saying that what happened in Ferguson was a massacre at all. But what I'm saying is, as you may recall from your history class, the Boston Massacre sounds sounded horrible to the colonists and the other patriots, and it got everybody riled up, and it was the right cause that they eventually all lined up and got fired up about, but the specific facts of that episode aren't really what true, really. But they got everyone riled up anyway, and it's, and it's not that the thing that they got riled up about was wrong, if you follow what I'm saying. You know what I mean? Like, the, the, the narrative that got them riled up was incorrect, the cause they were fired up by was was a correct one, if that makes any sense. You know, it does, Pat. It does. And and going back to the events that happened in Ferguson leading up to the announcement of the no bill, when did it seem odd to you covering that region as a journalist that the district attorney put off the announcement till eight o'clock? despite him trying to justify the fact that he wanted all the kids home from school, all the commuters home and in, in, in lockdown in place. Was this something odd to you in your time out there in St. Louis? Oh, my God, yeah. It was a surreal. It was such a surreal. Everybody's life was on hold. I mean, granted, compared to other people's hardships, it's nothing. But everybody, whether you worked in news, law enforcement, uh, you were a teacher, like everybody's life was for three months, like, Oh, is it going to be today? I heard they're going to announce Sunday. No, it's going to be next Sunday. Or I heard it's going to be this day. So everybody was walking on eggshells, like, fearing this announcement because they had this sense that once it came, it was going to be like a hurricane. It was going to be another wave of rioting and looting and unrest, and that's exactly what happened. So, yeah. So, But everyone also would say McCullough is his own man. He's he's not going to wait until the holidays, or he's, he's going to announce when he's ready to announce. So, yeah, when we heard 8 o'clock, uh, frankly, everybody in our newsroom just kind of said, really? Like, 8 o'clock? Um, but, you know, it, yeah, it, it, was a, it was a real surprise to a lot of people that, that that was when it happened. And, again, thank God, thank God, thank God, nobody was killed. Dan Lipner, you got a question for KSBK's Pat McGonigal. Yeah, Pat, I was kind of curious, since uh, at least nationally there's been a lot of pushback on uh, the, the, the prosecutor not recusing himself because he actually works a great deal with the Ferguson Police Department. Uh, is there has been any further conversation on the ground in St. Louis about how that was handled to get community buy-in or at least in the future not having a situation like that handled by a prosecutor who works so closely with the police that are being investigated. And, and Pat, let me jump on that one also. Is uh, Along with Dan's question, I also want you to chime in on the fact that the, the district attorney out there, McCullough, his father was a police officer in the region. His father was killed 
during a uh, attempting an, or effecting an arrest on a suspect. Uh, has there been any call for him that he is, in fact, was biased in this case? He was going to be pro-thin blue line from the get-go, that he should have recused himself for that reason as well? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, from the get-go, that, that, that has been something people have said that, you know, it's well known that that his father was killed in the line of duty by, by an African American uh, suspect, and uh, so yeah. So from the from going back to August, a lot of people in the black community have said, "Let's get a special prosecutor. We don't think we're going to get a fair shake." Uh, the governor had the opportunity to appoint a special prosecutor. Uh, he did not. Governor Jay Nixon did not, and he he said that Bob McCullough was elected to do this job. He's there to carry out the will of the people. Um, again politics have been thrown in there as a as a real big sort of unknown ingredient in this whole stew. Um, the relationship of Jay Nixon with the prosecutor, the relationship of Jay Nixon with the mayor of St. Louis, um, there was a lot of talk that there should have been a, a special prosecutor, but at the end of the day, uh, Nixon said, nope, uh, McCullough is the man for the job. And, and I will say, Justin, um, again, I read the transcript of McCullough's announcement, and I've read most of the grand jury testimony. And and in fairness to McCullough, he will tell you, yes, I am the son of a police officer who was killed in the line of duty, but I am a sworn officer of the court. I am the prosecutor for St. Louis County, something I take very seriously. And he really did present hours and hours and hours of testimony uh, as fairly and scientifically as he would have liked. But, again... You know, should Darren Wilson have been able to testify in a grand jury proceeding? Uh, most lawyers will tell you normally that doesn't happen. Uh, they would say the prosecution's job is to bring charges, not to bring in the accused and give him the opportunity to get his side. So, you know, I'm not an attorney, but there have definitely been questions about some of the proceedings uh, behind closed doors with the grand jury. Carl Tubin, question for Pat McGonigal. Yes, Pat. <clears throat> uh, you talked about the fact that the, the uh, city of Ferguson has changed from a, a white city to, to a majority black city. Uh, was there any thought among the leadership in Ferguson of hiring more African-American or African-American police so they could get to know the community and maybe have been, been stopped beforehand? Yeah, no, that's an excellent point. There has been. Uh, and, in fact, the, the governor appointed something called the Ferguson Commission, a 16-member group, and, and that's one of their the top things on their list is to get some more African-American candidates into the academy and on the streets. Um, initially, when that idea when was raised, regretfully, the mayor of Ferguson, or I think it was Chief Jackson, of Ferguson who said, he said, we don't have a lot of candidates. We don't have a lot of young African-American men who want this job. Um, I, I don't know if that's, you know, the truth, but they are, it's definitely something they're working on right now because they, they know they have to improve the relationships between um, the police and, and young people in Ferguson. And there again, the, when you read the testimony of Darren Wilson and of Dorian Johnson, if you're like a communications professor at a college, it's fascinating because both accounts are different. You know, Dorian Johnson says, Darren Wilson said, get the F on the sidewalk. Darren Wilson said, hey, what's wrong with the sidewalk? Um, then, according to Officer Wilson, Mike Brown said, F what you have to say to us. 
Dorian Johnson said, Mike Brown never said that. Uh, then, of course, the whole thing spirals out of control. But you could really see how just the language and the words and the posturing, how all of it really does make a difference. And, and it can sort of um, be a, a starting point anyway to, to get something done. Well, and, and, I, and I'll just say this. I'm, I'm sure you saw, Justin, I just wanted to add this about um, the St. Louis Rams. I knew when, they, when the receivers came out in the hands-up-don't-shoot posture – I, I groaned a little only because I knew how that was going to play because now that the facts of the shooting are mostly out and we can all agree this was a tragedy, but it wasn't a massacre that by most accounts he wasn't gunned down in cold blood with his hands up, according to most of the testimony. But what they were saying was they are with the protesters. They're not saying cops are bad, Mike Brown was gunned down in a hands-up position. They were making a symbolic gesture. I just want to point out Jared Cook is a tight end for the Rams. He was one of the players. He is a very bright fellow. He's not um, a troublemaker. He's not a bad dude. He came here two years ago, and immediately I met him. He was very impassioned about this school busing issue that we have here that uh, is sort of a, you know, a racial story. And so he's somebody who's very alert, and he's not looking for trouble, but he wants to make St. Louis better, and, um, and you know, you've got to applaud that. Bob Hines, question for Pat McGonigal. Pat, I'm curious about uh, what kind of re- reaction has the governor received when uh, on the night of the uh, re- grand jury uh, decision being made, uh, let the National Guard uh, do its job? It seems to me yeah. that, uh, that 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 must have been a terrible mistake. I don't know how he ever decided not to let the, the guard help. Yeah, he's taken a beating for that. Absolutely, the, the mayor of St. Louis has said that he did deploy guard troops to uh, I think I want to say at forty-five different locations in the city, uh, effectively and without um, without any negative consequences. I know that the state patrol has said in what we like to call Ferguson 1 back in August, that occasionally it's smarter to stand down. I know this sounds crazy if you're a business owner and you lost your business, but they will tell you, they won't say, look, we we let it burn for a night, but they will say, we didn't lose any lives, we lost some property, but if you try telling that to uh, Sam's Meat Market or anybody who lost their business last week, and found out that there were National Guard troops, but they were down the road in a staging area. There's a lot of anger about that. There, there really is. Alan, more question for Pat McGonigal. Yeah, Pat. Uh, hi, it's Alan here. Um, I, I really like your comments about how, in so many ways, this isn't about the facts on the ground at Ferguson, which we know a lot more now. Uh, than uh, a lot more about now than we did before, acknowledging that there are some things we will almost certainly never know. And you talk about the the mountain of uh, uh, of material, which uh, in a, contra- a very controversial move uh, they decided to to make public. Um, the I, I will I I don't want to debate the details because I'm really more interested in your bigger point, which is Though the facts were were you know, are in dispute and are clearing up, and it was murky, and there were you know some some mysterious, unfortunate forces here uh, that that occurred, it taps 
into a larger problem. So even with the hands up, don't shoot, probably that didn't happen. Almost certainly that didn't happen. We can't be certain. But that sentiment exists in that community and in other communities all around the country. So Ferguson, curiously, like your 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 daughter sort of observed, it was it was not the best set of facts. It didn't really matter. And, and, and American history is full of situations where something that was looked like one thing turned out not to be. It didn't matter because it triggered this this seething anger and distress um, that 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 existed. Um, and that we now have to deal with. And as far as Ferguson is concerned, I think you guys, I suspect, and a lot of others on the outside have high hopes for the Ferguson Commission and what it might be able to to say about life going forward. Not to relitigate what the grand jury did or did not decide. Not relitigate the question of whether Ferguson him whether whether the officer should have been testifying. I think almost always the person likely to be charged is has the opportunity to appear. They just never want to because you come in alone. You don't have a you don't have a lawyer with you, and anything you say can be used against you. So it's it's not that this was what was unusual is that he actually decided to do that. But I think the bigger point that that you were just dead on about is is this underlying deeper wider concern about police and race and and young african americans um and this this huge divide and and different treatment yeah it, no it, that's exactly it i mean i mean when i was reading dorian johnson's testimony he was mike brown's um um companion that day it's right. you, you know you read it and it's like seven in the morning it starts out they talk about smoking weed. They don't have uh, cigarillos. Um, so they decide to go up to the market. And Dorian Johnson claims he didn't know that Mike Brown was going to pull what he did in that store. And, and then they left. And by now it's noon. And they're walking back uh, towards the apartment complexes. But they're walking right on the center line. And, and all the grand jurors are saying, no, wait a minute, you, you – you were nervous that you just witnessed this robbery, but yet you're walking down the center line of the street, and most would see that as an act of defiance. What were you thinking? Why, why did you do that? And, and Dorian Johnson answered, well, I didn't think much of it. I didn't think we were bothering anybody. But um, And then the cop comes, and they exchange F-bombs, allegedly, and there's all sorts of – and, you know – Right there and then, you have to look at Dorian Johnson, who's 22, and Mike Brown, who's 18, and think, "Geez, this is this is your Saturday morning. You're, why, why don't you have a, a better expectation uh, of what what you were going to do that day? That this just sounds like, I mean, a, a, a life that's not headed anywhere too fast. I mean, they, but those, you know, you can only guess at what their motives were or, or what their every day was on other days." Go ahead, Alan Moore. Yeah, that reminded me of a really interesting exchange I heard uh, on, on on one TV discussion of this. A, a white person saying, you know, when we when when we grow up, we teach our kids, or our kids are we were taught as kids, if you ever get lost, if you ever have a problem, go find a policeman and he will help you. And his and his African American counterpart said, in our community, it's not at all uncommon 
for parents to tell their kids, if you have a problem, if you're lost or if you're in trouble and you see a policeman, hide from that policeman and wait until family or friends or someone else can come and help you. That divide yeah. that speaks uh, to, to a, you know, a huge challenge. Yeah, we're going to talk. We're going to talk about that in our second segment. But uh, Pat, well, a few minutes we've got with you left over. Uh, Officer Darren Wilson, uh, a week ago Sunday, uh, that Sunday following the announcement, uh, I'm sorry, that the uh, Wednesday following the announcement, said that he was in fact resigning from the Ferguson Police Department. Is there any indication that that was forced by the department and by community leaders? Or is this a decision that, look, I can't be a police officer in Ferguson, let alone Missouri or anywhere in the Midwest. My career as a law enforcement officer is over. Yeah, by all accounts, Justin, it looks like it, it was his call that, that he just realistically looked at the situation and figured that I can't walk the beat in, in Ferguson uh, ever again. And um, But it's, it's a good question because my wife actually asked me, she said, well, why did he have to resign with no severance? That sounds like an admission of guilt. And by all accounts, again, I think he just realistically said, I can't do this job. I don't want to jeopardize anybody else. Um, but, but just real quickly, the other thing I'd say to the situation in Ferguson, those apartment complexes, obviously, where this happened, many of them are Section 8 housing. And there has been a lot of coverage about how St. Louis County and counties all over America put up these apartment buildings that are Section 8 um, you know, they take Section 8, and other communities keep those out. And so the accusation has been made that Ferguson was just sort of a powder keg because they were, you know, allegedly warehousing poor people in this little corner of the county, and the police knew that, and a lot of the first responders knew that. And 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 unfortunately, stuff like this can happen when, when you, you warehouse poor people just in one part of a community. Pat, uh, regarding the, the the riots, the protests that happened the night of and the subsequent following days of uh, there in, in Ferguson, it, it, has there been any indication by the DA's office or by law enforcement officials out there that they are going to be actively seeking indictments and are investigating those who were, quote-unquote, troublemakers throughout these series of events? Oh, yeah, they are actively looking for all of those people. They're going, you know, through the surveillance uh, video that they have. Um, but in, I didn't realize, to be honest with you, in South St. Louis, within the city of St. Louis on Grand Boulevard, I have a friend who lives over there, and I had no idea, frankly, how bad the storefront smashing was uh, in the city of St. Louis. Uh, it really, my heart sank. It's a really cool part of town that's really sort of um, been um, revitalized in the last 20 years with these old great art deco buildings from the 30s and 40s and kind of hipster bars and tattoo places and uh, really cool neighborhoods. Uh, but it looks like a war zone right now, and it's terrible. I was going through, and I thought, geez, I didn't know it was that bad. And, you know, you'll hear reporters say this. Sometimes when they were covering, uh, like, a hurricane or a story, the camera really does only show you so much. When, when you're surrounded, when you go to these stories and you're, see it in a panoramic way, it really it really hits you in, in a very personal way, and you think, oh, my God, this is terrible. I can't believe it's this bad. Um, so, so, yeah, definitely the onus is on finding the protesters, but, or, I mean, the looters and the people who cause trouble. Uh, but at the end of the day, I mean, everybody is just hoping and praying 
that something good will come out of this. And I, and I think, frankly, some good things have already come out of this, um, but, but we certainly have a long ways to go. Very good. I'm going to let that be the last word. KSDK, Danker, Pat McGonigal. Pat, as always, thanks a lot for your insight there, boots on the ground there in St. Louis County. Always good having you on the show, my friend. Uh, anytime, Justin. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. When we come back, we're going to continue the discussion here at the roundtable about uh, the Ferguson decision and where do we go from here. Meanwhile, this is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in four minutes. Stay with Wow, a little bit of Fats Waller, Lulu back in town. And I, I tell you, when I am back in town or when any of my friends are back in town or, heck, when we're living here in town, we usually find ourselves down at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., right across from the National Press Club. Why do we come here? Well, they've got the city's best cigar menu the most diversified with some of the best-known brands and some that you might even know, but you might want to give it a try. Everything from Arturo Fuentes down to Zeno. You can go all the way from your $9 little petite girly flavored cigars all the way up to the Opus X Lost City. They have a cigar for everybody. Mild, medium, strong, heavy. However you want to smoke it, it's available here at Shelly's Back Room. Come in, have Bob, Na, or any one of the girls show you what the right cigar might be for your taste that evening. Again, Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. As Bob likes to put it, it is definitely the place to be. You can tell the mailman not to call I ain't coming home until the fall And again, I might not get back home at all Lula's back in town Shelley's back room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Uh, great, great perspective on what happened out there in Ferguson after the grand jury decision not to indict uh, Officer uh, Darren Wilson and the uh, altercation with uh, 17-year-old Michael Brown. But, you know, when we look at the whole situation, it's, it's unfortunate 
that a 17-year-old uh, youth, his life was taken on the streets of, of a city in this country. But it, it does call into a bigger question, as Pat pointed out. Uh, Bob Hines, there is a problem here in this country, and you know we're talking about you know just to be open about this. Around the table is just you know five white guys and an educated attorney white woman. Uh, but there's a, there's an obvious problem in the divide between the relationship between blacks and whites today, as well as the black community and law enforcement. Well, you know, the reality for me is that most of these young black men don't have much education. They don't have jobs. They don't have opportunities because the universe around them just doesn't doesn't provide for them. And I, I'm not making a, you know, I'm not saying it's good or bad, but it, it can't help but make people frustrated. Dan Lipner? Well, and let me go in a different direction there. So as a as a young lawyer uh, working all around the D.C. area, I befriended a, a gentleman, African-American. We both graduated law school around the same time. I'm not going to use his name on the air since I invented this with him. But we shared the, the story of our, our, the day we graduated from law school and how proud our parents were. In my case, in Atlanta, my parents took me out for dinner. My sister bought me a, a very nice bottle of Dom Perignon, toasted uh, graduating law school. In his case, uh, he, he uh, graduated from uh, law school in Maryland and was in, in Baltimore at the time. And his father came to take him out for dinner. And on his way from his graduation ceremony to dinner, uh, him and his father were stopped by the police, cuffed and placed on the ground because they looked like suspects for a crime. The day he graduated from law school, I cannot fully imagine taking that day from that height to that level of humiliation that, that occurred, that there is clearly something else at play. And whatever the facts of this particular shooting in Ferguson might be, for some portion of America to ignore the fact that there is a larger conversation taking place is not helping the overall political narrative. But that, Alan Moore, though, you know, it, it, it's it's funny when we talk about let's talk about the relationship between law enforcement and the black community. In this case, in the Ferguson case, in the Michael Brown shooting, in talking with, <clears throat> excuse me, in talking with. Uh, several friends of mine who are law enforcement officers, not just out in uh, middle America and down in the southeast, but particularly those in an urban setting like my friends here at Metropolitan Police Department, they all have come to the conclusion that, you know, look, it's unfortunate that Michael Brown's life was taken, but had Michael Brown obeyed the lawful order of the police officer, Michael Brown more than likely would still be alive today. And this would not be, it wouldn't be newsworthy. It would just be something that the community would have to address internally in Ferguson. Well, obviously, he could have done a number of things differently and still be alive today. But I think the point that, 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 that Dan is making is that differential treatment, which we all need to acknowledge, does exist many, many times, many, many places, does breed resentment, which can lead to 
bad decisions that lead to horrible outcomes. And and I'm not going to forgive his mistakes, but I am going to acknowledge. I think we all we have to that there is this great grand divide that builds resentment, and the the more resentment, the more likely the 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 trash talk, the f bombs, the contempt in in language and mood, and uh, and we don't fix that overnight, um, but we have to acknowledge it exists together and have a have a common desire to change. But I'll go back to the comment I made about about messages that that, that white parents pass to their kids, and that that certainly some African American parents pass to their kids regarding the police. They will help you or hide from them. Think about that when you start hearing that when you're a kid. But Denise Crap, you know, Rudy Giuliani was on Meet the Press uh, a week ago this past Sunday and took a lot of heat for a comment that he made regarding the the Ferguson case where he said that, you know, cops aren't killing blacks. Blacks are killing blacks. Whites are killing whites. It, he took a lot of heat from that, but on the same time, Office of uh, Justice Programs come out with statistics that almost justify not so much the way he said it, but some of the facts that he brought out. Is there, in fact, a lack of understanding of all these facts and a lack of understanding of the individual communities that these police departments serve? Yes, I'm not really sure about your the question you're asking right now. Um, what I can tell you is that the only way a police officer kills somebody, or at least the most likely way, is going to be with a gun. So he is the one with the gun, he or she is the one with the gun in their hand. And he or she is the one that is pointing it at somebody else. And there are some very interesting statistics about the folks that are dying based off of um, police officers' actions. What are the statistics? Predominantly minority. So, what? I mean, if, if, if you are looking at those statistics and you peel back the onion that um, both Alan and Dan are talking about, there's a bigger problem here. And, um, you know, I, I, uh, I, I had the misfortune of having relatives who are from the, from the north and from the south um, join us for Thanksgiving this year. And uh, we refought the Civil War. The misfortune, which is Yeah, I said the misfortune. Uh, okay, okay. Um, and there was don't some, listen in, family. Right. Yes, right. So, um, there were some spectacularly appalling statements that were made in my house. Um, and I was thinking about that afterwards, and after I closed the door and said, "Oh, thank God, they're no longer here." Um, thinking. If those are the statements they made to themselves, and those are the statements they made to each other, and those are the statements they convey to others that don't look like them, there is a reason that there is a large portion of frustrated people in this country, because there are others in this country that don't think nice thoughts about them. Dan Lipner. Actually, I want to talk directly to what Rudy Giuliani said on Meet the Press. Uh, it was with uh, Michael er, uh, er, Eric Michael Dice. Right, right. Yeah. And his, his comments were the, the blacks killing blacks, whites killing whites. And something along the lines, now I'm paraphrasing, that if 
if there were more outrage about blacks killing blacks, maybe there wouldn't be as many white law enforcement in black communities. Laying out specifically that the or at least implying that the police were not members of the community as a whole, an us and them kind of dynamic. And that conversation is where a lot of the situation breaks down, that African-American communities are not part of the overall community, and police are, are a separate entity in those communities. But, That's I, part but, of the problem. But, but that, that statement into itself, Dan, strikes me as an overgeneralization. That's a broad brush. Because you're looking at prominent, you're, you're looking at prominent. About, I'm talking I'm, about Giuliani's okay, statement okay, specifically. But you also, and not a consequential figure in American politics. No, no, no. But you also have the sheriff of Milwaukee County, who recently gave a speech here at the press club across the street, talking about this incident, where you know this is not a black on black, white on white, white on black, black on white issue. It no, it's is a blue on black. It, issue. It's 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 a law enforcement issue itself his comments and it's been it's it's been almost widely repeated that you know if the if we don't have law enforcement it which is a tough job we live in a state of anarchy and and that's a false dichotomy the suggestion is not having no law enforcement the the suggestion is having law enforcement practice law enforcement differently but you're talking about a black head of department in a large urban community in Milwaukee who is expressing the sentiments of, look, the attacks on... He's expressing the sentiments of law enforcement. There is data out there that suggests African Americans in uniform behave not dissimilar from white officers in uniform. That is actually an issue of law enforcement versus minority communities, not minorities versus minorities. Bob Hines. One of the things that I, I saw recently, and I can't have don't have the numbers in my head directly, we have more uh, police shootings than any other country in the world by a factor of uh, 50 to 1. It's amazing. Canada has something like 120 deaths in the last four years. We've got 120 deaths, deaths in three months. It's, it's, now, there's something wrong with that, and it's within our police operation. Alan Moore. Yeah, I was going to add a little something about, about the data. Um, we don't have good data. Um, they're, 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 we're supposed to have good data. It's required by law that it be collected. When police kill citizens, it is supposed to be reported to, to the FBI and, and the, the Justice Department and most of them are not. I think last year about 460 events were reported. Other information that was informally gathered by a group of, of journalists came up with about a thousand such incidents, and they know that there are more. And then of that, so we, we take a thousand. A fourth of these are white police killing young blacks. Many, then there are others, obviously, where minority police kill uh, young blacks, and then it depends on the neighborhood. You have whites killing whites if, if there's an urban-rural divide, but, but we don't have good data. I think, I think Dan is right on, though, in making this point that there is a, there, it's not, 
there are elements of white on black, and there are certain suspicions that regard, but there are many more incidents of blue on young black. And it's not just white police officers who profile and are concerned about young uh, uh, young blacks who may be uh, dismissive of police, disrespectful of the police, and may or may not be armed or thought of as armed. Um, there's a it, it's it's more than just a racial divide. Carl Tuvin. <clears throat> Uh, I'm not sure whether it was on Meet the Press or another interview I heard with Giuliani, where he said that one of the things that they've done in New York is put black policemen in areas where the proportions are higher than other areas. And they have both white and black working together and also trying to get the policemen to really know the community and meet the people in the community. And, and that evidently has uh, brought a lot of good things in New York. That's true. Denise Kropp? The other part of this discussion we think about is, is the militarization of the police departments that are occurring around the country. I mean, what, as we're pulling back from Iraq and Afghanistan, we're doing a lot more donating of military goods. I mean, do we need to see tanks? I was floored. We don't have tanks. Really? They don't have Ferguson tanks. did. Ferguson didn't have tanks. They what did. what is a, look at those show me I, I show me a picture. No, no, show me a picture. That, that is unfair. And 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 I have a problem with the media about this. When they say the militarization of the of the of law enforcement, first of all, you know, oh my god, there's tanks and and, and they're and they're using high powered rifles against these people. And that, and that's and that's simply not true. A majority of those vehicles that were shown in those pictures were not necessarily donations, but tactical vehicles purchased by the tactical units by those law enforcement agencies, namely St. Louis County, namely City of St. Louis, Missouri State Patrol from City of Ferguson. Those are bought now, bought through grants through the Department of Justice, yes, through are. Department of Homeland yes, Security, they but they are not military vehicles. Those they, are tactical vehicles. So, so, okay, tactical military. Wow, that's a, that's that's a, that's a, there's that a big difference a, there, so, though, Denise. No, 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 there's no. a the huge only difference, difference there. Is who's driving it. That, 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 that's, that, that's not fair. That's not, that's I mean, not it, fair, it, Denise. I mean, we, do not, we are not going to war against our own people. There's a perception that we are going to war against people that don't look like us. And if you look at somebody and you look at some of those pictures of Ferguson, it's like, oh, my God, there's a reason this thing escalated out of control. If you are upset and you are frustrated and you are a protester, and on the other side, you have an individual that is garbed in gear that, well, doesn't make me think peaceful thoughts, what do you think is going to happen? I, 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 will, I will tell you right now, Denise, I, I think that, number one, as, as somebody who's been involved in that, I can tell you right now, that when the when Ferguson won, as Pat put it, Dan's showing a picture. What are you showing a picture? No, as, as far as uh, Denise's point, the militarization of police and the 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 argument that if it, by doing by providing this equipment, providing these this, this training, you incentivize police forces to actually use the equipment and training. So, and, and considering we have some, some military veterans around the table, there is a case in Arizona of a former Marine who was being served a warrant for failure to pay, pay child support. He was served this warrant at 6 a.m. Uh, by the SWAT team that invaded his house. 
because this former Marine who might were it having somebody with guns in his face coming storming into his house, and since we actually believe the house is sacred, you were entitled to defend yourself. He went for his gun and was shot and killed by the SWAT team for failure to pay child support. So okay, let now then the the, the the thing about it is rest your case. Yep. Well, no, 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 that, no, 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 absolutely not. As 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 the only person, you're not obviously suggesting that was correct. I'm I'm absolutely. I I don't know the facts. What you're doing is reading media accounts of a situation. No, wait a minute, wait a minute. As somebody who's actively done this, I can tell you we don't know the facts behind it. And regarding Ferguson and Denise's comments, what you have is in Ferguson one, as Pat put it. You had officers that were in basic community control gear up on the front lines that were there to monitor civil unrest possibly, but they did not insert tactical units or tactical vehicles until after the crowd started throwing rocks, bottles, and assaulting police officers. That's fact. You think that the the crowd didn't see what was standing right behind them? No. If you look at where the staging area was, particularly in the second event, it was blocks away. It doesn't matter. No, it does matter. It does because that's the quote you made, Denise. Right, but you know for a fact that that announcement didn't come out until eight o'clock at night. So people weren't just standing around twiddling their thumbs; they're walking around and taking an assessment of what was about to come down. Why would they take an assessment of it? If you were there to protest peacefully and not literally destroy. 12 businesses. That by holding it out until 8 o'clock at night, doing the way they did, they were inciting it. It's not Michael Brown's stepfather that was inciting it. It was the way in which this entire thing laid, played out a week I ago. I, I, I disagree. Bob Hines. The bottom line here is that in the United States, we kill more people than any other country by police, by hundreds. And it, there's something wrong with the system the police are doing. Whatever they're doing, they're doing something that is probably overly, overly aggressive. I don't know it for sure, but I am so very surprised. In Canada, this is what, 12 deaths in a, in a year. You're also talking about a population that is a quarter the size of the United States. Yes. And you're also care, talking about they a care twelve people. We kill twelve hundred. You're, you're talking about. You're also talking about a country that has more. That has arguably stricter gun control laws. No, they're as armed as we are. Not not to the extent of assault weapons. Not to the extent of extended clips. The type of armament. The type of weaponry well, that you're allowed to bring. I agree with you. I agree with you. Anybody who sits there and tells me I am absolutely pro gun control. Nobody needs to go hunting with an AK-47. Nobody <laughs> needs to protect their house with an AR-15. Except for the police. Except, yeah, for, except the police, for the police. Yeah. So stop, stop, stop. I think, guys, I think every policeman should not have a car. Should have a tank. We've got a we've got a caller on the line. Hold on, caller, you're on with backroom politics. What's your question, caller? Yes, I'm here. Hi. Hi. What's your question? Could I give a comment and then the question? Please, please do. The situation in Ferguson is directly related to our history. What we have is a a top-down system that doesn't call itself top-down anymore. 
Um, and I think that um, Michael Brown isn't necessarily the type of guy that I would have wanted my daughter dating. However, I would not have killed him. So we have to decide what, how do we define a thug? Meaning is a thug a teen that goes into a store and steals something and let's say curses out the store owner? Or is a thug a mafia person that kills people for a living? Or a person that presses a button and drops a bomb and kills 100,000 people, etc. I think that when it comes to young black African-American men, the description definition of thug is saggy pants, you know, walk in a way that isn't uh, considered corporate, maybe curses, maybe goes in a store and steals something. That's a thug. Not the guys on Wall Street stealing so much money that it negatively impacts many nations' GDPs. So I think that we have things sometimes very upside down because of our biases. But it doesn't mean that there aren't young people that need to learn more respect for the law. The problem is, for the average black teen, they're not going to respect cops that are beating up people in their community and being disrespectful. I see it in my own community. So we have to get both groups together. Um, Young black men need a bit more mentoring, but cops definitely need to learn. You don't pull out a gun over every situation. Otherwise, once the gun is out, you know, clearly there is going to probably be some some force used in many cases. Good point. Do you have a question, sir? Yes, the question is, how do we stop this madness? It's just insane. How do we get beyond the, uh, is it even possible? I don't know. Some people argue that it's not possible for us to get beyond this. Not just Ferguson, by the way. I'm just talking the whole racism issue. Very good question, sir. Thank you very much for the call. Uh, Carl brings up a good question. Is you know How, in fact, do we get around the situation of race relations in this country? Dan Littner. Well, I mean, it's definitely a complicated uh a complicated answer for a not inconsequential question, and part of that is the the the, the conversations that people are having. And I I'm actually been kind of shocked when I the 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 spontaneous protests or maybe not so spontaneous protests that occurred after after the grand jury uh, uh, statement about not indicting the the officer the the protests the that occurred in New York and Los Angeles. Uh, even here in D.C., uh, shutting down the 14th Street Bridge, uh, the peaceful protests, mind you. Um, and I was very impressed by the protests, but I was honestly shocked by a lot of the responses to it. And the and amongst the professional white America that I that I've been working with during the day, uh, those folks kept saying, "Well, justice was done. This this this, this happened. I don't understand what came out." as opposed to paying attention to the conversation that it is larger than just Mike Brown. And there have been plenty of stories in the press uh, that almost without dispute that, that were actually filmed shootings. And I ca- I've come back to it before. The gentleman who was shot in a Walmart uh, for carrying a toy gun that he picked up in Walmart and was doing nothing dangerous. The gentleman who was shot in, I believe it was a, uh, North Carolina, North and South Carolina, officer pulled him over for not wearing a seatbelt. 
Officer then asked him to get his license while reaching into his car to get his license. The, the police officer shot him. Now, in that case, the, the officer was indicted and is going to be going to trial uh, for assault with a deadly weapon for shooting this gentleman without cause. Uh, these are not inconsequential. You can go back in history. It was, uh, I believe, uh, Amadou Diallo, who was shot by a New York City. Uh, no, Amadou Diallo was the uh, one with the plunger. Oh, okay. Uh, so Ab Abner Louimo was the other one yes. there, uh, who, who was shot, and something like 110 shots were fired at him when he was reaching for his wallet. You put enough of these stories together, and I'm comfortable saying there's enough smoke, maybe there's at least a little bit of fire that needs to be investigated. And white America that Alan was talking about before that was taught that officer-friendly, the cops are there to help you and are there to support you, Maybe paying attention that this narrative isn't true for everyone, and that conversation needs to be had, not just retreating to your corner and go, and go this is what my experience was, this is what everyone's experience must be. The, 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 one, the, the one thing I will say, and there are bad cops, no question. There are cops that are badge heavy, no question. There are bad shootings, no question. When those bad shootings happen, a majority of the time, I'll not say all the time, but a majority of the time that those, when those incidents occur, they are investigated. If the shooting is not justified, that officer is taken off duty. That officer is then, that case is then brought before a grand jury, and the grand jury issues an indictment or a no bill. Internal Affairs also investigates every time and says, look, this was not a good shooting. You will lose your job. You will lose your ability to be a law enforcement officer. This is not correct. I mean, there are bad cops. There are bad shootings. However, can I throw in a third item there? Sure, please. Is it also possible that there's bad police training? That good cops who are trained poorly respond to situations in not the best, effective, most effective way that actually lead to bad outcomes. I, I will. I will tell you this as somebody who's been through both federal and state law enforcement training, basic and advanced. It is all that training that you do. Each situation, each time you do a, 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 a vehicle stop, each time that you approach somebody to question, anytime that happens, it is a unique situation unto its own. No situation is ever completely the same. The officer, no matter how much training you do, still has to make a judgment call, and that judgment call happens within a split second in many instances. You have to make a Judgment call. You go through judgmental shooting. You go through judgmental training throughout your career as a law enforcement officer. And I will tell you, it is a tough, tough decision that not a lot of cops truly want to go through. I had the fortunate, I had the fortunate experience in law enforcement. I never once drew my weapon, and I'm fortunate for that, and I'm grateful for that. I never had to use deadly force in any situation I was in. But I will tell you. Those that have, and if you talk to them, they will tell you that's something that stays with them forever. And it's not something you can ever get back, and it's always something that remains throughout their career. Alan Moore. Yeah, and I, I'm remembering that Officer Wilson had, had never fired his weapon in the line of duty prior to he had never drawn this, his particular, weapon. this particular day. Having said that, and we were talking about these, these statistics before, and I'm reminded of another statistic, which which uh, we also have to remember, and that is the number of police who are killed in the line of duty. 
and if it, which is much larger in America than in, in any country. country. So, to just to give some perspective, it's not close to the number of, of people who are killed by police, but it's it, it 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 it's not a trivial number. When things like that happen, police hear about it, and that heightens their concern, their fear, their their sensitivity, keeps their uh, uh, their, their their adrenaline uh, going, and as you say, every situation is different, but it's also every situation is also colored by your training, your experience, your mood that day. What's going on at home? What happened two Not hours earlier? Scenario, I agree. Every there's so many things uh, uh, that that come to play, and and none of us are ready to stand up. Uh, I mean, you have in the past and say, "Hey, I want to go be a policeman because I want to." I want my adrenaline to be pumping overdrive. I want to. I want to be a good po- community policeman. But yeah, and let's go. Let's go uh, into some domestic some domestic uh, violence dispute uh, calls and, and and or 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 find a go after a fugitive. It, it's a it's a tough tough business. But if to the extent that there's racial profiling, um, lack of respect. The only way we overcome that is a long-time investment based on people of good faith recognizing that we're all in this together and there's no hiding from it, no matter who you are and where you are. I will agree with that. Carl Tubin. Well, I know a lot of the things that we've discussed here were discussed yesterday when the president brought his cabinet together. And then when he met with uh, uh, he commissioned the Ferguson Commission himself. Right, and also he um, he met with young civil rights kids leaders, which hopefully will develop into a positive situation. He talked about training. He talked about cops uh, 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 having to have more sensitivity, uh, uh, and he, he talked about. Uh, a lot of different things in, in those discussions. And hopefully, uh, he, and he said, and hopefully in the next two years uh, of my administration, that maybe a lot of this will come to fruition. You know, I I get upset when I see Eric Holder, the Attorney General, going out to Ferguson and diving into the situation. When we get cops shot, nobody shows up in the administration for their funerals. Nobody inserts themselves as federal investigations. Nobody goes in. It is it is it is tragic when the attorney general goes out to the law enforcement memorial, as the the sheriff of in Milwaukee put it, also an African American. When he sees the attorney general go out to the law enforcement memorial here in Washington D.C. talking about those who have made the ultimate sacrifice in protecting and serving their communities. Yet at the same time, when we see police officers shot in the line of the duty, we don't see administration filters show up. None. What we do see is outrage when we see a, a situation where a officer shoots. Unfortunately, let me be clear, it was unfortunate that Michael Brown lost his life. No, nobody wants that. But to politicize it the way that this attorney general has is absolutely discouraging, in my words. But I don't think he's politicized. In fact, I think he's helped 
calm it down. This situation could have been much worse. It could have been a repeat of the 1992 riots in L.A. It could have been a repeat of the summers of 68 and 69. It could have happened. And my argument is that by going out to Ferguson and talking with people, it is calming the situation that nobody wants to blow up. Attorney General Eric Holder has never once in this situation come out and discussed the issue of law enforcement and the dangers that they're put in jail. They fully understand that. It's a perception issue. Just as we talked about before, just as we've talked about before, it's never a tinderbox when a cop is shot. It's never a tinderbox when a law enforcement officer dies in the line of duty. So, okay. I am pretty confident that on more than one occasion, Eric Holder has talked about the dangers that police and law enforcement officials face. I, I saw quotes just this week. I'm guessing it just it it doesn't get the visibility that a Ferguson does because a this is huge. Everybody realizes it's huge. There's 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 a rioting in those streets, and and I commend him for going to Ferguson. And I don't have any particular complaint. I got plenty of complaints with Eric Holder. <laughs> But none of which have to do with his going to Ferguson and the way he behaved when he was out there. Go ahead, Carl Tubin. And he not only went to Ferguson, but he went up from other cities that were having problems and, and also tried to calm it down. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to say that Eric Holder has been the perfect attorney general. But <laughs> I think we're all in agreement on that one, Carl. But I, but I also think that he has, he has in, in, in his term, he has tried to do some things that uh, are very positive. Actually, I'm going, to take, I'm going to take this on more directly. As far as the outrage about Eric Holder and showing up at, at police funerals that died in the line of duty, the reason Eric Holder showing up at this event because of the, the rioting and how the national focus had occurred here is also to lend voice to the fact that there is never a processional talking about the deaths that have occurred under by police that were unjustified shooting. Every time I have seen a police officer that's been killed in the line of duty, while maybe not celebrated, his life was not celebrated by the Attorney General of the President of the United States, I promise you, there are communities showing up, the, the, the procession of following the casket, the events that occur to talk about the difficulties and the challenges that police all across the country face daily is always talked about. Rarely talked about are the victims on the other side of it. So to to manufacture this outrage, the attorney general chose to act and speak up for a a a a, a, a minority that is almost unheard by by a large portion of America. That somehow that that one moment in contrast for all the other moments that communities across the country routinely talk about law enforcement and talk about their hard job is is manufacturing outrage and it's it's just not deserving of the attack. I I, I I I would invite everybody to go look at the video and read the transcript of Sheriff Clark's comments at the press club yesterday. And I think it'll put it into perspective. That being said, we're going to move on to something a little bit more fun. 
We're going to talk about Chuck Hagel. When we come back in two minutes, Chuck Hagel is no longer going to be Secretary of Defense. A possible nominee is on the horizon, but still questions. Was he fired? Was he not fired? Was it voluntary? We'll talk about that when we come back on a very busy Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom in Washington, D.C. Stay with us. We'll be back in two You know, you hear us talk about Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's being the place to be. America's premier cigar tavern, place to make new friends or visit old friends, or even have a lively political discussion like we do here on Backroom Politics. But what you may not know, Shelley's is the place for private parties. Shelley's Back Room is available to host events for groups of 10 to 250. From cocktail receptions to sit-down dinners, Shelley's can provide custom menu options to suit your needs and budget. Although Shelley's is a smoke-friendly environment, Shelley's can make accommodations for non-smokers based on the side of your party, but heck, why would you want to? With a cigar menu like they have here, why would you even consider going smoke-free? Event pricing varies based on the time of the day of the week chosen for your event. For more information on private parties at Shelley's Back Room, go to www.shelleysbackroom.com slash private dash party. Shelley's Back Room, the place to be, as Bob likes to say it. It's also a place for private parties. For those of you guys who don't know, while we're on Thanksgiving break, Chuck Hagel himself resigned last week as uh, Secretary of Defense and has committed to the president that he would stay on board until a nominee was picked. Questions immediately started flying. Was Eric Holder fired or did Eric Holder leave voluntarily? Hagel. 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 What did I say? Holder. Holder. I'm I'm still upset about the Attorney General. Was... Eric Holder is going to be the next. Well, Eric Holder is also resigned too, by the way. He's on his way out. Um, but the big question here in Washington is: Did Chuck Hagel resign voluntarily, or did he get fired? Alan Moore, start with you. Was he fired? Chuck Hagel was invited to leave, and he agreed. I mean, he this this we talked a lot about Hagel when he was nominated originally. This was going to be the great genius. Uh, uh, nomination, a Republican of all things, who was reasonably well liked. That's arguable among his among his colleagues. It would be an easy confirmation. 
the Democrats would have to get on board. What a brilliant stroke. The pro there were a couple of problems. One, he wasn't beloved by Republicans. He had a huge, difficult, challenging confirmation fight because of Republican objections. Secondly, he was not, he didn't have the kind of experience to run this monster, nor the expertise in the armed services. He was the ranking Republican on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. That's not the Armed Services Committee. He was not an expert in how defense ran. So he was a he was a marginally qualified choice who did not have the political advantages they thought, and he has not but been I, a great secretary. But Alan, but Alan Moore, those who are close to Chuck Hagel say that Secretary Hagel, as Secretary of Defense, did not make decisions in a vacuum regarding how the department and the strategic vision of the department, that he relied very heavily on his Joint Chief of Staff and the heads of the uh, respective services. Well, of course he did. That's what you do. That's what you have to do. Not a, nobody goes in there as a, as a complete and total genius who says, this is what we're going to do on every matter. You, you have to know how to run something. The problem for, for the whole DOD, and Bob Gates talked about this, Leon Panetta talked about it, is micromanagement from the White House and a National Security uh, uh, Council, which now has a staff of over 400 people. And they are are sitting there trying to be a trying to be this this overseer surrogate decision maker. I I I don't know of anyone in that job, and we and I think Bob Gates and and Leon Panetta were were better qualified going in. And by large count, Stellar is Secretary of Defense. Chuck Hagel, and they were driven crazy by the micromanagement, and so there's no surprise there. But but. But Hegel appeared just not to be a great fit for the job, even under the constraints that the White House has placed on it. So it, we got two years. Things are not going well in in various places, not least of all Syria. Let's make a change. Let's move him on. Okay, go ahead. Uh, first of all, when they brought him into the Department of Defense, one of the things that they wanted him to help with was pulling out of Iraq and pulling out of Afghanistan. And then you get into it, and then ISIS comes along, and then it turns into a different situation. Um, a very close friend of mine, who's a very close friend of, of uh, Secretary Hagel, says basically three people made the decision uh, to have him go because of the disagreement between the White House and, and him and the micromanagement. And it was Valerie Jarrett, Michelle Obama, and the president. And, and and evidently there were a lot of what I call now young novices uh, in the White House who also wanted Hegel out for one reason or another. So but, it's a, I, I really think it, it's a bad situation. I think they, they should... He was trying to be helpful, trying to do what the president wanted him to do, and not shut down. But, but Bob Hines, Chuck Hagel, it, it's been noted throughout the media and through rumblings here inside the Beltway here in D.C. that the, the tension and the butting heads between the White House and the Pentagon has been almost escalated since Chuck Hagel took office as Secretary of Defense. There was 
a lot of uh, whether you want to call it parity between the role of the Department of Defense and our military as far as dealing with Syria, as far as dealing with ISIS, and as far as the drawdowns in Afghanistan and Iraq are concerned, versus the versus the Commander in Chief, President Obama, moving forward on his strategy politically. There was conflict going on there. Is this a situation where the conflict just got to be too much for both sides, and they said this just isn't working out? Well, I think that's exactly right. I mean, the president. Uh, I, I think it's. I think it's fair to say, as we, we I think Alan has said earlier, that uh, Hegel is not uh, was not an expert in in the military field, and uh, of why he was chosen, I'm not sure. Uh, there might have. Been, I would have think. I would have thought that there were several Republican senators. If he wanted a Republican senator, he might have found a better one with more experience in the military. The decision being made, uh, the president can, can fire him. Well, and yeah, well, when we when we look back at when they made the announcement, one of the one of the key factors of why Chuck Hagel may have been attracted to the White House was here's a guy who started out as a boot private in the army. Served time in a combat zone in Vietnam, uh, and in fact did time as an enlisted person. And, the, I, and I can see where this would be attractive to the White House. Here's an enlisted guy, boot recruit, now heading up as head of service for Secretary of Defense. That's a good story, and it should have been a morale booster. Well, it may be a good story, but I don't know about a private being. We have the experience of the private being. Not arguing with you, but it's a good it's a good morale booster. Hey, this is this is the GI's GI's minute. yeah, that's about it. Yeah, but he's the GI's he's the GI sector. Stan Lipner. No, this this is a different level of politics is at play there. So yes, it's all true about the White House micromanaging not only defense but state as well. And a few other cabinet issues, unless that that that, uh, that cabinet head happens to have the particular trust and ear of the president. Um, so the departure of Eric Holder at Justice is going to be interesting for Justice. But the the White House picked Hagel because even as a senator, Hagel was not a while he did speak up, he did not speak up lively on a lot of issues, and he did raise one of the first Republicans to raise slight issues on the Iraq war. So he provided a little bit of political cover there. But they also expected and got from Hagel as Secretary of Defense, a not stellar Secretary of Defense who's going to make a lot of waves and a lot of changes. Then enter ISIS or ISIL. Lo and behold, it became a defense problem again. And uh, Secretary Hagel started leaving the, the, the White House script on where they wanted, how they wanted to handle ISIL. So, which, which is part of the reason why, and I, I would, I'm curious whether or not anyone at the table knows knows anything about Ashton Carter, who is the the next is going to be the nominee. For yeah, the we'll talk about him in a second. But, but that's, but that's part of it. The White House wants to maintain control, and the way you maintain control for a very, very front stage position is you have somebody who doesn't necessarily want the noise that's associated with it. Carl Tuvin. You also have to remember that back in. The- 2008, Hagel wrote with the Republican Party and traveled and supported President Obama. So they became they became close when they served in the Senate, and then he helped in, in the campaign. He thought basically that he was going to get a job in the first party administration in the first term, but it didn't happen. 
With, Alan Moore, when, when, when we look at this, it almost seems like that fuse was lit as far as the career dissipation of Secretary Hagel when he went against the White House uh, calls for no boots on the ground. Hagel came out and said that's not necessarily true and did, and did so with his chairman of uh, Joint, Chief, Joint Chiefs of yeah, Staff. Yeah, Martin Dempsey, the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, he was the one that was a little more assertive, and he basically said, you know, if if if, if I believe we need combat troops, I'll say so. We don't. I don't think we need them yet. So, but even that was was putting some distance. I think, was, was that the first block in the uh, downfall? Think, yeah. Well, no, no, no. I mean, I <laughs> I think there's probably been concerns about his leadership. He was in, by the way, to get us out of Iraq and Afghanistan. We were pretty much out. He, his main role was to downsize the department. Uh, somebody who had been in the past critical of how big it had been, and the thought was, gee, here's this Republican who can get confirmed, who's got a lot of support inside the party, which turned out to be not so deep. Um, and But his job is going to help in a smart way downsize. Panetta came in for a, a little bit of that, uh, that, that same purpose. Um, now, we ran into this problem of, oops, Syria. Iraq went bad. Iraq went bad. Syria went bad. Syria's really bad. Afghanistan plans are are awkward. Do we have a big thinker who can navigate this, who also can negotiate with the new Republican Senate? Oh, wait a minute. Those were guys who I think a majority of them voted against him. Um, there were a host of factors. These two guys had become friends. Um, remember, <laughs> the president didn't spend a lot of time in the Senate before the four years he was there because he was chasing around all the time, but he was on foreign relations. And and so he got to know Biden and he got to know Hegel. Um, and that was the, the, the root of the of the, the friendship that they had. Um, and and Hegel got crossways with McCain and others when he opposed the surge in Iraq, which turned out. Fifteen minutes could save you 15 percent. Turned out, turned out. Are we getting paid for that? No, no. To, to, you know, that was one of McCain's big complaints. McCain, of course, now is is Hegel's defender, so-called, by saying, "Oh yeah, he was in my office recently, complaining about how this is going." It was just sometimes, if it's a bad fit in an important job, you have to make a change, even if it's your friend. And that's when it's really hard. That's one of the reasons, in my mind, that that Valerie Jarrett is the wrong person to be in her senior job. She is too close to the family, so when she messes up, they don't know what to do about it. So, Denise, so it, it almost seems that Chuck Hagel being doomed for the beginning as far as being able to downsize the Defense Department, those keys were taken out of the car by sequestration, leaving pretty much Chuck Hagel almost powerless to truly, truly come up with a grand scheme of strategically downsizing the Defense Department. Yeah, I mean, he didn't have the keys that other secretaries have had in the past, which is you know more money, more personnel, more assets. Um, I, I can say that, yes, he was pushed out. And the most abominable statement that I heard about the, uh, the pushing out was some anonymous source telling Fox News that um, you, don't, you shouldn't be sending a sergeant to do a secretary's work. Um, I can say without a doubt that I was floored by that statement 
And um, whoever said that owes Chuck Hagel an apology. Right. The man served two terms in Vietnam, took bullets for our country. I really don't care what you think about him, but you don't dismiss what he did for our nation. True. So, you know what? Go pound sound, whoever True. said that one. True. Go ahead, Carl Tubin. The other, the other thing to look at is the fact that uh, his hearing uh, was not a good one when he first came in uh, True. as secretary. True. And, uh, you know, um, Mr. McCain, who beat him over the head, uh, <clears throat> is now a big defender. And, and, and let's, let's also look at this. It's not only some of the Republicans that have been defending him. Chuck Schumer has gotten into this thing and criticized the White House for what they did. Well, you know, it, it's funny. It, when the announcement that Chuck Hagel was going to resign as Secretary of Defense came down, uh, through several sources that I have inside the administration, there were at least that we know of three different possible secretary nominees that turned the president down, that said, if you think I want this job, you're out of your mind. We love you, we support you, but I'm not taking that job. Is it gotten to the point that this is probably the most undesirable job in Washington right now? Dan Lipner? No, there there is somebody who has passed over for this new vacancy that there is some rumbling. Uh, the potential first female Secretary of Defense, Michelle Flournoy, was, was floated around a bit. Uh, Word we got was that she turned it down. She did. Yeah. There, there's no way. I mean, I, I, I've, in my prior life, worked with, with both Ash Carter, Michelle Flournoy, and uh, Bob Work, whose names were all floated. No way. Yeah. There, there is absolutely no way she would take this job because of what was going on with the National Security staff. And 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 the other name we heard was Jay Johnson, the current Secretary of Homeland Security. He's taking his name out. He, he's taking his name yeah. out. Now we've heard we've heard through the grapevine that he took his name out one because he he's got more control over his department as Secretary of Homeland Security than he would as Secretary of Defense with a one would say out of control National Security Council. Well, the last thing this administration would want is to have the the nomination, the confirmation hearing for a new Secretary of Defense to be all about the immigration executive order that that Jay Johnson, Secretary of Homeland Security, helped to, to write and create. He had a miserable long day yesterday. Um, and another one today, too. About it, another, another one today, today too. And, and there'll be more. Um, he's, he's a grown-up. He can defend himself, uh, and 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 so on. But you know, you, to to it, it doesn't always help you that much to move cabinet members around unless you really, really believe firmly that somebody is uniquely qualified to to take over. Because it just means one more additional confirmation fight that you've got to have. The, it, it seems likely we're talking that this guy, Ashton Carter, who yeah. was, who was the deputy for both uh, Leon Panetta and Hagel until a few months ago um, when he was replaced by a guy named Bob Work. Those are the, the two leading candidates at the moment. Remember, we got less than two years here, and one of the one of the comments made about Michelle Flournoy is, why, why would she want to come in at the end? She's still young enough. She'd rather take her chances of being at the beginning of a, of a President Hillary Clinton uh, uh, but, hold, on, Carl, hold on, Carl Tubin. One of the reasons why they, they were looking at the Johnson was because he's very close to the president, and also it was said that the White House would be able to control him better than other people. 
somebody who can go in arm in arm with the president and his defense agenda uh, that could possibly work with the behemoth National Security Council inside the White House. Uh, this is a guy who was deputy, deputy defense secretary under both Panetta and Hagel. This is a guy who was at one time general counsel to both Secretary Gates and Secretary Panetta before he was elevated to deputy, uh, deputy secretary. Uh, but at the same time, he's not necessarily a known name commodity nationwide, as we would have. What's it? Yeah, it could be an advantage. advantage. <clears throat> Inside the Beltway, it sounds like an advantage. But outside the Beltway, as far as getting Middle America to jump on board with this new Secretary of Defense at this time, is is that going to be a help or a hindrance? It'll absolutely be a help. The Middle America does not get into in-depth conversations about foreign <laughs> policy. And considering we live in a country where 40% of the country can't name the excuse me, can't name the vice president, um, <laughs> the secretary of defense is fairly low on that map. But the other advantage to it, and this is the modern media culture, and while I don't, I, I, I'm not going to celebrate how this White House handles communications, it's hard to demonize somebody you don't know. So him being an unknown commodity for defense cuts having to look up the name of who the Secretary of Defense is in the world of demonizing things, it makes things a bit more challenging for the other side in, in fighting the battle. So does, does, the, does the fact that Carter is a bureaucrat and has zero time in uniform going to be a hindrance to him, Bob Hines? No. Not a, it's, it's a short period of time. He'll be gone when the president's coming. Denise Krapp. No, because he's going to do what the White House tells him to do. Wow. Okay. That being said, we're going to keep an eye on this subject. We'll see how that comes as the official announcement comes either later in the week or early part of next week for Ash uh, Carter to become the new Secretary of Defense. When we come back, we're going to talk about the lame duck Congress that's recently returned to town after a, a healthily long Thanksgiving break. Uh, and some of the fights that are coming up, including funding the government to keep it open and we got an immigration concern. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. Are we here? Yeah. Wow, a little bit of Fats Waller. Lulu back in town. And I, I tell you, when I am back in town or when any of my friends are back in town or, heck, when we're living here in town, we usually find ourselves down at Shelley's Backroom. 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., right across from the National Press Club. Why do we come here? Well, they've got the city's best cigar menu, the most diversified with some of the best-known brands and some that you might even know, but you might want to give it a try. Everything from Arturo Fuentes down to Zeno. You can go all the way from your $9 little petite girly-flavored cigars all the way up to Opus X Lost City. They have a cigar for everybody. Mild, medium, strong, heavy. However you want to smoke it, it's available here at Shelly's Back Room. Come in, have Bob, Na, or any one of the girls show you what the right cigar might be for your taste that evening. Again, Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. As Bob likes to put it, it is definitely the place to be. 
You can tell the mailman not to call. I ain't coming home until the fall. And again, I might not get back home at all. Lula's back in town. Yeah. changes 
in what you're already doing, increase here, reduce there, redirect over here. But in order to deal with the the distress and anger over the immigration uh, executive order, pull the Department of Homeland Security, which among other things is responsible for Homeland, homeland Security and enforcement of deportation orders, um, and fund it only until early next year to keep leverage on the White House um, to say we're not make we're not going to make this easy for you. We are going to continue to hold all that spending hostage. Hope that that leverage will will result in some further different change. Uh, to this policy. But, now, they can obviously also try to legislate in that area, right. but they won't have but, be giving themselves a huge amount of time to do that. Dan Lentner, this seems to me like this lame, lame, lame duck Congress is trying to bite off more than it can actually chew. Is that accurate? I think it's accurate, and I strongly encourage Speaker Boehner to put as much out there as possible. As a matter of fact, Invite in some of the newly elected Southern Republicans. Uh, I, I want to see and hear them as much as possible. I encourage them. I think they should be out there on C-SPAN. All right, and you're, all you're done. The- Dan, you're done. You're done. I'm just telling you right now. Carl Tubin. If it's anything like Dan, I'm shutting you down right now. Authorization Act that has to be passed, and 
some thought in, 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 in up in up in the hill that that might not get done. Oh, on top of the on top of the fact that you've got you know the separate homeland security funding bill, you've got a national defense bill that's may or may not get passed. There's another there's 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 a need to deal with what are called tax extenders. Right. We we we, we, have, about, that. we have about fifty different fifty different provisions of the tax law that that get that get authorized for a year or two. It, it is a it is the lobbyist's dream. Oh, good. We you won't have to shut down government. It'll shut itself down. For, for many lobbyists, it's like if, it, if, a, if a provision is made permanent, you don't get to get paid to argue about it. Uh, it's a beautiful every thing, year, isn't it? The year. So there was a big, a big effort underway between, between, between uh, Boehner. Alan, we don't talk about Fight Club. There, there was a lot of activity to, to do a big tax package, um, making some progress, and then when the president decided to uh, issue this executive order on immigration, it raised a bunch of questions. Wait a second, are these four and a half to five million people affected by the executive order going to all of a sudden qualify for federal tax credits for or, uh, something called an earned income tax credit and a child tax credit, the answer was, wow, maybe. And the Republicans said, we're done. That has to be pulled. But Harry Reid agreed to pull it, setting off a firestorm among uh, his the progressive side of his party, not to mention the White House. So the big package completely cratered and collapsed, but there will have to be a, an extension probably another year on all of these things so we can oh, have that fun again now that now year. that alan has opened up the kimono for k street thank you for that alan <laughs> bob Hines, uh it, it seems to me that the vayner again being probably one of the most unheralded best speakers we've seen because he's had to deal with a lot vayner has pretty much put up that they're going to put the funding of the they're going to put the uh funding bill up first yeah. uh all indications are right now that it should pass and that according to Politico, uh, they will probably then bring up the immigration bill that the Republicans are proposing in the House as a secondary measure. It, it, it almost sounds like it's a sign by Speaker Boehner of saying, look, we're going to try and stop the logjam. We'll take up immigration, but White House, you're going to have to extend dialogue towards us like now. Is that accurate? I don't know if it's happening. I don't know if that's going to be what's happened. But right now, the only thing I'm sure of is all screwed up. <laughs> Dan Lindner, is there some truth in that possible strategy that they may say, look, you know, we'll take up your immigration bill. We've got our own version. You can't keep saying we're the party you know. If Boehner manages to do that, and this is something I, I've been talking about, uh, I I think he's going to get attacked from his his own flank. Yeah. That the there there is a portion of the Republican Party, and and to be clear, nobody at this table uh, that is not a fan of immigration reform because they're not a fan of immigrants. Period. And that conversation to be had is not good for the Republican Party, and it's definitely not good for Speaker Banner. But but yeah. you but you also have a situation here, Dan Lipner, and and actually I won't go to Denise Crap on the House where. Although it's a difficult road to hoe as far as Boehner's possible strategy, funding bill first, 
immigration bill second, it does seem that according to some sources, including our friends at Politico and our friends at Bloomberg, that say that uh, uh, Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy and uh, Majority Whip's uh, Congressman Scalise are in fact on board with this strategy. Is this a sign that we're starting to see the separation in the Republican Party maybe coming together, coalescing, and then maybe looking to move forward? I, I would imagine when you're looking at the top three, Bader, Scalise, and, and McCarthy, and they're working together, which means that nobody's, which might have happened in the past, looking behind them going, oh, where's the knife? Now that we've gotten past that era, if those three are working together, they're going to make sure that their members toe the line, because if they don't, those members are unfortunately, well, they're just not going to be on committee. No. And, and Boehner will make sure that happens. And there are, there, 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 there are probably a group, there always are going to be a group of Tea Party people who are so far over you can't stop them. I mean, the, the indications, but, I mean, the indications right now is that McCarthy as a majority leader has a strong, strong hand in what goes on, and that Scalise as a whip has a very large piece of leather that he can swing around as yes, needed. and that's exactly what he's doing. Is that what Boehner needs? Yes. Yes. Very good. Carl Tubin? McCarthy, <clears throat> McCarthy said about three weeks ago that uh, this Congress, this House is going to do things, and we're not going to run the House as the former majority leader did. So that was a real good indication of, uh, and the fact that it's being followed up is a positive sign. Very good. With that being the case, we're going to go to my favorite part of the show. It's Tell Me a Story, where we talk about Inside and outside the Beltway politics, rumor, innuendo. By the way, I'm going to start off. Our first story was regarding the Ferguson case. Backroom politics broke the news that a no bill was being passed down by the uh, grand jury in by the grand jury in St. Louis County. Ten minutes before any other news source had that, we had sources working the courthouse in St. Louis County that gave that to us early on. We broke that news, and do we get credit for it? <clears throat> no. That's my story. Bob Hines, tell me a story. Senator Landrew is going to be packing her suitcase. She's doing that now, dude. <laughs> she, has, she has no chance to win. Carl Tubin, tell me a story. That don't mean, mean there will be 54 Republicans in the Senate. Big hopefully, win. Hopefully they'll be able to get together. Big win, but I'm, I'm bipartisan. Uh, Carl Tubin? Some pundits are saying that with the uh, – uh, and possible entrance of Dr. Carson into the Republican race, that he will... Uh, uh, tea Party's dead, I thought? Stop. <laughs> Let him finish, and then we can make fun. That he will pull a lot of right-wing support that Ted Cruz was counting on, which only will be helpful to Jeff Bush. Or Chris Christie. Or Chris Christie. Because we know Mitt Romney's not running. Denise Krepp, tell me a story. Cuomo, out of New York, issued a fascinating report yesterday talking about oil by rail train parts. And the reason it was fascinating is I've never seen a state governor who is the same party as the president put out a report saying, I'm doing much better than you are. This is what I'm doing. This is what you are not doing. This is what I'm doing. This is how you're failing. And I mean, it was truly, this is how you're failing. So let's all watch and see what Cuomo does over the next. Oh, year to 18 months. Are you suggesting there's aspirations there, Denise? Oh, no. 
Oh, really? <laughs> Alan Moore, tell me a story. Oh, my God, another Cuomo running for president? Go <laughs> figure. Alan <laughs> Moore, tell me a story. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's so right. yesterday was World AIDS Day, uh, an annual event, December 1st. Um, and And... A real milestone has occurred this year with uh, with the fight against AIDS globally. Um, we're doing so much. Uh, it all started really in 2001. Um, so these 13 years later, one of President Bush's singular accomplishments that, that President Obama has been uh, in full support of. Um, the, but the milestone that occurred is this last year for the first time ever, more people went on to treatment for AIDS than were newly infected. This wow. is, a, this is a, a turn of a corner because always before, as we increase the numbers on treatment, people prevented prevention of mother to child, we always had a, more people infected than were getting treatment. And because it's a death, death sense if you don't get treated, um, it, it's, uh, it's a great sign that, that, in fact, in our lifetimes, we might not conquer it unless we find the drug, but manage it in a way we could talk about or think about an AIDS-free generation down the road. There we go. Dan Lindner, tell me a story. Uh, I, I, Alan may have stolen some of my thunder because uh, my, my, my topic is much, much more serious, uh, and that is that Seth Rogen is apparently a threat to our national security. <laughs> uh, so a a actor, director, producer, comedian Seth Rogen, uh, for his upcoming film called The Interview, uh, which is based on a, a, C a, a CIA plot to assassinate the, the president of North Korea by having a television interview. Uh, the North Koreans have taken umbrage and... and Declared war apparently on and, Sony Pictures, and they've and they've declared war on Sony Pictures by hacking Sony Pictures uh, servers and releasing a couple movies, including they, Annie, including Annie. <laughs> they they pre they pre issued Jamie Fox as Daddy Warbucks and Annie, and it went viral. It went viral. Young girls are crying today. North Korea hit us where it counts. <laughs> the box office. <laughs> Kim! <laughs> that, that being said, because we're all about Hollywood <laughs> politics, that being said, on behalf of Bob Hines, Carl Tubin, Denise Krep, Alan Moore, and Dan Lipner, special thanks to our guests, Pat McGonigal out there at KSDK in St. Louis. I am your I'm your most I am your host and moderator, Radio's Justin Russell. We will be back again next Tuesday, where we will talk about all the inside and outside the Beltway politics happening this week. And we will be doing it live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Bob. The place to be. Absolutely. You can follow us on our website, www.backroompolitics.org. You can follow us on the Twitter. Backroom Politics, and you can email your concerns, gripes, or any advanced copies of Annie that you want to throw my way. <laughs> Justin at BackroomPolitics.org. Folks, have a great week. We'll see you next Tuesday. Bye-bye.